Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. SCP-6666. The Demon Hector and the Dread Titania. As we continue to explore the SCP universe, we're uncovering more and more of the history of the anomalous world and its peoples. One big part of this history is collectively known as the Cactusverse, named after its creator, DJ Cactus, an expanding web of myths, curses, betrayals, and discoveries. The piece we'll be discussing today answers a number of questions about the Cactusverse, but also serves to raise a number more. I won't quite say that knowledge of the other pieces of the canon, notably SCP-4812 and SCP-4840, are required to enjoy this one, but it certainly wouldn't hurt. With that said, let's strap ourselves in and begin. SCP-6666 is listed as Thaumiel class, meaning that it assists in some way in the containment of other anomalies, although the specifics of this function won't become clear until much later. It's described as a colossal botanical entity located in the Amazon rainforest, comprised of a wide trunk and many thousands of arching branches reaching away from the center mass. It appears to be a form of a tree, with a trunk roughly 380 meters in diameter and a height of 9.2 kilometers, although it doesn't resemble any known species of tree, and it shows no signs of life at a cellular level. It's also notably inverted, meaning that it's hanging upside down in a massive subterranean cavern, 52 kilometers wide at its widest point, and 43 kilometers deep at its presumed deepest point. The cavern seems to have been formed naturally between 450 and 560 million years ago, and its walls are almost completely covered in the tree's roots, suggesting that at some point the roots grew downwards into the earth rather than up towards the surface. The whole floor of this massive cavern is covered in a thick fog, 200 meters thick, which continuously flows outward from a jagged opening in the side of the tree. The Foundation still has no idea what exactly the fog is composed of, but living creatures who breathe it in suffer a near-immediate loss of neurological function, with long-term exposure leading to a shutdown of the central nervous system and death. The oldest roots of the tree are stationary, but despite the fact that the tree seems to be entirely biologically inert, new growths continue to form, and are both mobile and hostile. These roots continue to appear above ground, attacking anything that comes near them and attempting to pull them down into the cavern. This effect can be mitigated by stopping all movement, but unless quickly rescued by a team brandishing incendiary weapons, it's likely that the large quantity of roots will simply suffocate the individual instead. 
The cavern is accessible via a large cylindrical shaft with a stairwell built into its side, although it ends just below the lip of the cavern ceiling in a way that indicates that it originally extended beyond that part, possibly as part of an extremely tall tower. Radar scans of the bottom of the cavern indicate that the majority of it is covered by a vast forest of tall trees, with the eastern side of the cavern containing an extensive network of ancient ruins, partially covered by the fog. Perhaps the most notable aspect of the tree is the gigantic, vaguely humanoid entity partially emerging from an opening in its side. The entity possesses six arms and six eyes, is believed to be roughly 23 meters in height, and has numerous scars and burns across its skin. One of its arms is significantly larger than the rest, and is partially fused at the wrist with a large spear, roughly 18 meters long, which it seems to have used to open up the side of the tree. The entity has no ears, nose, or mouth, but is capable of vocalizing in a currently unknown language, and seems to be in a state of permanent torment due to the fog pouring out of the opening. It is capable of regenerating, however, allowing it to stay in its current position without succumbing to the fog. According to SCP-4840-A, Seth, this entity is the Demon Hector, one of the four knights described in SCP-4812, along with Lancelot in SCP-4840, Lahire, SCP-2254, and a yet undiscovered fourth entity. All of these entities are potentially many millions of years old, if not older, possibly predating the existence of much of the Earth itself. Let's do a little bit of a recap then on these four knights. A long, long time ago, there was a kingdom known as the Sky Kings of Old Europe, led by the Great House of Apollyon, who descended directly from the first man, Adam al-Assem. One of these kings eventually decided to spread his rule across the Great Sea, to where the Fair Folk, or the Fae, lived. The Fae were busy in a war with the Children of the Night, SCP-1000, also known as Bigfoot, and thus were easily slaughtered by the Sky Kings. A single survivor was taken back across the ocean, a Fae princess, who proceeded to curse the House of Apollyon and the King, praying to an old and nameless god. The king was dragged into the depths by fiery chains, and the king's son ended up throwing the princess in a deep dungeon and tossing away the key. Four great knights were then appointed to defend the kingdom. Lahire, the fierce, Lancelot, the cunning, Hector, the stalwart, and Ogier, the faithful. Unfortunately, the princess's curse unleashed three great horrors in the land, known as the Three Profanities, which in turn corrupted the knights' hearts and caused them to betray the king. The king then also cursed them, causing their forms to twist and change into something vaguely resembling the gods of the fair folk, and they each went their own way. Lancelot eventually went to the great ancient city of Autopapadopolis with violent intent, but was struck down by a group including Seth, one of the sons of Adam al-Assem. 
Lahire is contained by the Foundation in Alabama as SCP-2254, while Hector seems to be contained here by the tree, and Ogier is still unlocated. They were each apparently kept hidden from the world for hundreds of thousands of years by the efforts of Seth, but since growing weaker in recent times, they are now all perceptible once again. The discovery of SCP-6666 was instigated through the investigation of another anomaly, SCP-4008, Wormwood. Wormwood describes a species of tree developed by the Davite civilization that is capable of not only rapidly growing and subsequently breaking down, thus collapsing everything around it into the ground, but also produces an anti-memetic effect that causes practically all humans on the planet to lose any memories they possessed of anything within the area encompassed by the tree. This means that when the Davites set off one of these trees, it was capable of essentially erasing entire civilizations from history. The question that the Foundation had then is where exactly the seeds of Wormwood came from, which would prove to be a tricky question to answer, since the source would be a sort of historical black hole. This led them to the Amazon, to a section where they could find no trace of human civilization. It took them decades of mapping out the forest before they eventually found the source, the underground dead tree. Project Paragon was set up to investigate and contain the tree, led by director Shannon Lancaster, We're given a transcript of a meeting between Lancaster and two other heads of the project discussing their investigation. They're having to continue to modify their perimeter due to the rapid growth of new roots, necessitating the constant presence of fire teams to destroy them. They've started to send in some drones to map out the cavern, concluding so far that everything down there is hundreds of thousands if not millions of years old and none of the ruins they've seen are South American in design, nor is it close to anything built by human hands in the last 10,000 years. Meanwhile, the forest blanketing the ground floor has so far been impenetrable. Director Malthus, the head of the Department of Antediluvian Research, meaning a time before the Biblical Flood, asks Lancaster for full access to the SCP-1000 file, asking her if she's familiar with SCP-2932. SCP-2932 is a massive organic structure in Peru that served as a prison system run by SCP-1000, the Children of the Night. After the downfall of their civilization, the prison was left in the hands of a singular entity to serve as the prison warden. Much of the prison has failed, releasing its inhabitants, but it was used to incarcerate at least some of the fair folk, as well as Adam al-Assem at some point, with cells planned for both Cain and Abel. The entire prison is powered by a massive, pulsing organ, said by the warden to be the heart of the goddess Titania, whom the children of the night prayed to. She, in turn, tore out her own heart in order to build the prison. Malthus, however, mentions, and admits that it's atypical for a researcher to suggest, that he's read enough Shakespeare to know that Titania is not a god of Bigfoot, but rather the fairies, referencing A Midsummer Night's Dream. 
They go on to discuss the fog, which is described as a really fine pollen, and if even a speck of it gets on or in you, your entire nervous system starts shutting down in seconds. They're working on the logistics of actually sending in people on the ground, as even the slightest tear in their pressurized suits could be fatal. Malthus also asks to bring in somebody from the Eshu team, meaning somebody that works with SCP-4000, the forest that's home to the last remaining fairies. Malthus says that they need a first-hand account of what they're dealing with here, and if it were up to him, they would have already interviewed a dozen fairies by now. What's more, he also wants to speak with SCP-073, Kane, since Abel isn't very talkative, and Seth, from Autopapadopolis, has been stuck in that city for millions of years. Kane was around at the time, and even better, has a photographic memory. They finish the meeting by mentioning that a number of the agents that they have placed on various observation platforms around the tree have been reporting some mild psychological symptoms recently, with a few having trouble sleeping. A member of the Eshu team, Dr. Park, was instructed to ask one of the fairies about Titania's prison and the Children of the Night during one of their annual meetings. Upon mentioning the prison, the fairy becomes visibly nervous and says that they never saw it themselves, but they heard stories of the torment that occurred there. Park asks them about the Children of the Night, causing the fairy to become even more nervous, closing the blinds on a nearby window, and saying that it's not something really spoken of, at least in pleasant company. The Children of the Night woke up in the forest, just as the fairies did, but while the fairies were in the treetops and could see the stars, the Children of the Night were down below, in darkness. When asked about Titania, the fairy gasps and pulls out a locket, staring at it briefly. They called her Ea, the sleeper in the stars. She was a god of starlight, and they loved her more than anything, even more than Gaia herself, presumably their goddess of the earth. The entity in charge of the prison was known as Caspin the Dreamweaver, an artist that could tell stories in dreams and bring them to life. The Children of the Night apparently came for him and he begged them to let him keep his life and his name, as names are precious to the fairies. The fairy explains that the Children of the Night were curious creatures that sat under the darkness of the trees in wide circles and would hum sad little songs together, swaying in unison. The fairies, in their arrogance, saw them only as sad little ground dwellers, cleaning up scraps and slinking around in the darkness. They chose not to notice that their songs caused the plants to bend towards them. They chose not to notice the bodies hanging from the tree branches, and chose not to notice travelers started going missing, and then the fairies themselves. They had ignored the children of the night for so long that by the time they started paying attention to them, they had turned foul. They came to Caspin and took him back down into the darkness, forcing him to teach them terrible things, including how to dream, as they were unable to, at least in the same way that fairies or humans can. Caspin was unable to teach them, however, and the fairy cannot imagine the horrors that Caspin witnessed down there in the dark. 
Afterwards, they asked Caspin to betray the fairies, and he did so without question. They apparently wanted to make a wish, so Caspin led them to Titania and let them ask it. Dr. Park asks what the wish was, but the answer is expunged from the record, and the fairy is noticeably shaking from the interview, saying that it was unforgivable. Don't worry, though. We'll find out about that wish later. Another interview was conducted with SCP-073 by director Sophia Light, with Kane proving to be a very personable interviewee. Light asks him about the Children of the Night, and Kane says that he hasn't heard that name in a long, long time. He apparently never encountered them himself, as they only came to his side of the world once, and he was occupied at the time. They came at the behest of their masters, looking for the individual that had committed a terrible sin, the first sin, Adam al-Assem. Assem was Cain's father, with Lilith as his mother. Cain was the eldest of the siblings, followed by Abel and then Seth. Assem's sin was pulling a star from another existence in the form of a crown at the request of Seth and the children of the night were sent to bring him to justice for it. By the time they arrived, though, the crown had already done its damage to Assem's family, with Cain driven out of Autopapadopolis, Abel killed, and Seth disappeared. Cain says that they were called the children of the night to contrast with humanity, who were born under the brilliant sun of Adam al-Assem. They were radiant beings back then, but have been reduced slightly since their separation from it. Light asks him if everyone in Autopapadopoulos was a child of the sun, stunning him briefly by the mention of the city's name. He responds that there were others in the city, greater and more terrible than him by far, but none greater than Assem, who kept the city and its secrets safe. After Assem disappeared, the city became more vulnerable, and he understands why they're discussing this now if the city has become exposed. Kane says that the children of the night are not like humanity or the fair folk. It's said that when the children of the night were first born, they had the curiosity of children, and eventually they found dark gods to pray to to satisfy their curiosity. The Dark Gods demanded sacrifice in exchange for the powers required to fulfill the Children of the Night's desires, and this sacrifice came from the history of mankind, as the Children of the Night would swarm civilizations and pull them into the Earth, removing all record of their existence from history. Cain goes on to say that the fairies were responsible for making them, or rather, wishing for them. The fairies worshipped Titania a goddess of starlight and wishes, so when Assem plucked a star out of the sky, it was such a blasphemous sin to the fairies that they were forced to respond. They prayed to Titania to create the children of the night, either to specifically kill Assem or to at least protect the fairies from him. Unfortunately, the children of the night are destroyers, and they eventually turned on the fairies before crossing the ocean to attack humanity. As for what happened to them, the SCP-1000 files say that humanity ended up wiping out most of them during an event known as the Day of Flowers, where supposedly every flower bloomed at once. 
Cain also mentions the Day of Flowers, but says that he was far away from the lands of men at the time, so he can't really say what occurred. Light asks Cain how exactly old he is, but he's long since lost track, and it's impossible to say. He does know, however, that he won't live forever, and he just hopes to correct his family's wrongs before he slips quietly into the darkness. He does say that there might be someone else they could speak to for information, an old sorcerer who served the ancient Davite house of Maladrog named Methuselah. Biblically, Methuselah was said to be the longest living human on earth, having lived for 969 years. Cain says that Methuselah learned from a dying Deva queen how to prolong his life with blood magic, and he's been poking around history ever since. Cain doesn't know if he was ever welcomed into the house of Apollyon to know their true secrets, but he doesn't doubt that Methuselah would have attempted to hang around them. He says that he has delusions of grandeur, but is certainly capable of some very real magic. Cain doesn't know where he would be by now, as he'd be hundreds of thousands of years old, but he would have been around during the time of the Children of the Night. Since Cain has a photographic memory, Light shows him a picture of an individual, and he confirms that that is indeed Methuselah, contained in another wing of the site Cain is in. Light also asks if Abel could provide any info, but Kane just says that he is angry and would be uninterested in questions of history, even if he had been there to witness them, which he probably wasn't since he's been in his sarcophagus for a long, long time. Before the interview ends, Kane says that if they've been to Autopapadopolis, they might have found a man there, his little brother, Seth. Unfortunately, due to protocol, Light is unable to even tell him that Seth is alive, and Cain just says that he understands, but he would have quite liked to have apologized to him. Moving on, one of the principal sources of information that the Foundation uncovered about the three profanities in the Sky Kings was known as the Cunnington Set, a collection of artifacts and journals written by an explorer, Sir Winston J. Cunnington. One excerpt taken from his journal discusses an ancient parable written by an individual known as Gom of Nod, which Connington believed describes events that took place near the end of the Sky King's rule. Some of the text has been damaged, but I'll otherwise read the parable verbatim. The words of Gom, son of Nod. Speak do I thus of these tales from the old world. Once there was a warrior, fair and strong, with eyes of green and auburn hair. His laughter was like rolling waves, and his rage was like a thunderclap. He was loved far and wide, and those who beheld him marveled at his craftsmanship, saying, Surely this is the one descended first from Asem, who lived in ages past. Beloved was he above all others, but more so by his king, the lord of hosts and sovereign of the skies. In the king's time of greatest need, he called upon the warrior and his power, and the warrior answered by sword, or until the king's enemies had been driven to dust, or his 
In return for his service, the king offered his champion a single favor, saying thus, For you, champion of champions, let my voice be clear. Heaven and earth are no boundary, nor life and death a barrier. Whatsoever you desire, it will be yours. And saith the warrior, Lord of hosts, beloved among sovereigns, I beg only your service, that I may serve you from this day until the last days of men, and that I may give you my heart, without reservation, to keep in your presence until the sun goes out. Saith the king, So it shall be forevermore. You will serve me, most loyal and noble of knights. Your spear shall be my spear, and your voice shall be my voice. Your heart will be mine forever, and when your service has ended, you will rest at my side in the halls of my fathers. Then did that great warrior serve his king through... It came then that the king, old though he had grown, set his sights for a final conquest across the sea. After... Did a sickness sweep over those knights of the king, and a profanity was put into them. Driven by madness and agony, one by one they cried out to dark and fell gods for comfort from their tribulation, and one by one they succumbed to the evil put in them. All that is but the great champion. He had given his heart to his king, and though his king now slept in the darkest mire of the sea, his loyalty did not waver. He came before the king's son, misshapen and altered, and cried out to him, saying, My lord, my lord, save me, please. Take pity on my condition, in remembrance of the service I have given freely to your father and your house these many years. Free me from this wickedness that I might serve you again. And did say the king's last son, Knight, Loyally have you served my house, but this abomination you have become diminishes the noble halls of my father. While this sickness possesses you, you may not reside here in this sacred place, nor may you call yourself a warrior of my house. Turn from the evil god of our foe, and find the dark root from which this terror flowers. Cut it down, see its fell shepherds driven before you, and succumb not to these vile alterations. Do this, and the halls of my house will open to you again. If loyalty to my father you have left in your wretched heart, then waste no time. Go and seek your salvation in the black forest beyond the sea, where mine father did seal our doom. For no such salvation remains for us but to excise this dread Titania from its soil. Do this, and regain your honor. Cursing and lamenting this tragedy, the warrior fled from those high halls like a writhing beast, a hurricane of torment and terror, and the people of his lord's kingdom wept and gnashed their teeth when they saw what had become of him, who once stood by their king's side. The warrior passed then from sight and mind, and his name was never again uttered in that ancient land. When the king's son was broken by the tool of his enemy and fell into darkness, his crown lost, he cursed his foe and the knights of his father, but saved his vilest rebuke for that great champion of his house, and the darkness he had... To summarize then, the text clearly is referring to Hector, who seemed to have been the most loyal of the four great knights. 
Despite the corruption of the Fae, Hector remained loyal to the Sky Kings, specifically Saurus VIII, who had been swallowed by the ocean due to a prayer from the fairy princess. His son was not especially welcoming of Hector's transfiguration, however, and sent him on a quest to redeem himself, a quest to find the dark root in the black forest across the sea, cut it down, and destroy its fell shepherds. Hector was never seen again, but it seems that he did indeed make it to the tree where he's still located. Let's set aside the myths and parables for the moment and have a closer look at the tree and surrounding cavern, thanks to a drone reconnaissance. The drone that performed the exploration was actually two drones, one larger one codenamed Hero, capable of operating autonomously when outside of its control range, thanks to a basic artificial intelligence, and a smaller one attached to Hero, codenamed Champion, for areas where Hero could not access. Hero begins its flight by approaching SCP-6666, with the distant sounds of Hector thrashing and roaring heard in the background. Eventually, Hector comes into view, trapped halfway into the tree as he continually tries to free himself. Thick clouds of green smoke pour out of the opening in the tree, burning and blistering Hector's skin. Hero flies away from the tree and Hector and descends toward the ground level of the cavern, flying eastwards. Before long, the drone flies out of direct control range and the AI takes over flight. Hero reaches the northern wall of the cavern, showing off the large, snaking tree roots that cover it. The rotors of the drone blow away some of the green fog, revealing some ruined stone structures. The layout of the rubble and debris indicate that at some point in the past, the entire building fell a considerable distance and came to rest here. More ruins come into view, an unusual mix of buildings, monuments, equipment, and other items. The ruins of a large stone religious structure are seen, along with long wooden row houses with thatched roofs, and strange fleshy membranes stretched tightly over the large arched supports that appear to be bones. The ground of the area is littered with tools, cookware, carts, weapons, and papers. Continuing to descend on the rocky slope, the drone sees more broken and collapsed houses, along with a crude storehouse and collapsed grain mill. As the green haze continues to clear, it becomes clear that this entire section of the cavern is covered with tens of thousands of buildings, as far as the eye can see, with many of them intertwined with the roots of the tree. This is causing them to be slowly pulled into the earth itself. As Hero passes over the ruins, an alarm indicating a life form is set off as it flies over a crumbled house. The smaller drone, Champion, is sent into the house to further investigate. Champion ends up finding the severely emaciated body of a small humanoid figure, curled into the fetal position. The figure shows no signs of life, of course, so Champion leaves the home and investigates several other nearby buildings. In one which appears to have at one point held draft animals, Champion finds the emaciated corpses of several horses, many of which are covered in large puncture wounds, their faces twisted in a look of fear or panic. 
At the back of this structure is the body of a single dog, its nails and paws worn down nearly to the bone, as desperate marks are seen in the wooden door at the rear of the building. Champion returns to Hero, which turns away from the ruins and flies westward, until it eventually reaches a sharp line where the ruins abruptly end. The rocky slope that the buildings were on continues down towards the bottom of the cavern, but no further structures are seen. The lifeform alarm goes off again, and Hero spots a larger humanoid figure sprawled out on the rocks below, similarly emaciated. It seems to have been crawling up the slope when it died, and as Hero approaches for a closer look, more lifeform alarms go off. The camera pans to show dozens of other similar figures, all of which seem to have died while crawling up. Hero continues to fly over the area, and the extent of the bodies soon becomes clear. Hundreds of thousands of emaciated humanoid corpses are seen sprawled out across the slope, all of whom were apparently crawling away from something at the bottom of the slope. The corpses range from children to adults, masculine and feminine, as well as some other animals and indistinct lifeforms with both humanoid and animal characteristics. Hero continues to count the corpses from a distance, while Champion detaches to more closely investigate the bodies. Each of the corpses is covered in a fine layer of pale green residue, and they all show signs of shock and panic, many of them laying in the fetal position with their hands covering their faces. Hero had counted approximately 283,824 bodies in an area of less than a square kilometer, and it flies further down the slope, observing that the density of bodies continues to increase until it reaches the cavern floor, where the bodies thin out. Before long, Hero comes to the perimeter of the large, thick forest blanketing the cavern floor, too dense for it to enter. Champion instead heads forward into the forest, carefully, but after only three minutes, its instruments start to suddenly report failures. The drone now seems to be indicating that it is flying upside down at a rapid speed. While trying to correct this, Champion strikes a tree and falls to the ground, at which point a loud, high-pitched yowling sound is heard. Champion begins to chime its recovery tone, which is picked up by Hero's microphone, but since Hero can't enter the forest, it doesn't do much good. Five minutes later, the chime begins to grow increasingly faint, as if Champion was moving away from Hero, but the drone's onboard sensors report no movement whatsoever. Eventually, the chime can no longer be heard at all, and finally Hero decides to return to base without Champion. Another meeting is held, with Director Lancaster and Director Malthus involved, along with a large number of other Project Paragon members, Ethics Committee members, and three of the O5 Council members. Director Malthus introduces himself to everyone as the head of the Department of Antediluvian Research, who have made it their goal to catalogue and identify as much of ancient history as they can before it's too far gone. He says that while modern human history has been ongoing for just the last 300,000 years, the true story of humanity extends for many, many hundreds of thousands of years before that, if not further. 
All that occurred 300,000 years ago was a great migration from Africa and the Fertile Crescent, where our ancestors had settled after the Great Flood. Malthus says that the Great Flood was a worldwide anomalous natural disaster that likely occurred sometime between four and 500,000 years ago, which devastated any existing societies at the time. The event also caused the loss of most of the evidence of the places, events, and people that the Department of Antediluvian Research studies. Their research, of course, goes back much further than this flood, back to the beginning of the world itself, including the flying city of Autopapadopoulos. The Autopapadopoulos that the Foundation knows is just a broken fragment of the first city, where a proto-human known as Asem ruled, and mankind got its start. The question remains of what happened before the founding of Autopapadopoulos, and Malthus admits that they just don't know. Whatever existed before humanity didn't leave a written record, but other beings did exist back then. Malthus then turns the discussion towards gods, which are very real and are powerful. There are, of course, a number of entities of great power that would be considered godlike by most people, but they're referring to more fundamental entities. They know of a couple gods that resided in Autopapadopoulos, thanks to information gleamed from Seth. One was Mekain, the broken god, and another was Yaldaboth, the god of flesh. The fairies, who predated humanity by millions of years, also had a number of gods they worshipped, the principal one among them being Ea, or Titania. According to ancient legends, Ea walked over the canopies of the fairies' forests, granting their wishes and singing to them. Most depictions of Ea are of an entity much like a fairy, while others depict her as a star, or as a beam of moonlight, or even as a sort of mother tree. As a side note, we now know who the entity made of stars is as depicted in one of the murals in Autopapadopoulos. Malthus and his team believes that the dead tree hanging in the cavern is, or at least was, Titania, and samples taken from the heart in the prison share undeniable similarities with the tree. The only way they'd really know for sure is to bring one of the fairies from SCP-4000 to confirm it, but they're reasonably sure regardless. That means that Titania is dead, but they're not sure what caused her death, as the removal of her heart seems to have been performed after the tree was already dead. Malthus has some speculation as to why there are new growths if the tree is dead, but leaves it by saying that since the tree is the corpse of a god, they can't apply normal logic to what it's capable of. The meeting goes on to discussing the entity currently stuck in the tree, Hector. According to the old texts, each of the four knights had been afflicted by a different curse placed on them by the fairy princess. Lust for Lahire, Wrath for Lancelot, Despair for Ogier, and Agony for Hector. Project Paragon was founded in order to mitigate the effects of these four knights who are re-emerging into the world, as well as the three profanities themselves, described in SCP-4812. 
The Foundation believes that the entity that the Global Occult Coalition uncovered is the same fey princess that was responsible for corrupting the knights and the three great profanities, and there's a lot of trouble brewing now thanks to that. Malthus believes that the forest in the cavern contains ancient ruins that could be a potential treasure trove of information preserved by anomalous means that could be invaluable in Project Paragon's efforts. He proposes a manned expedition into the forest, led by Applied Task Force Het-1, Lance of Longinus. This obviously isn't an easy task, starting with the fact that the 35km trip down to the base of the cavern floor will take the team just over 6 hours. The return trip will take them just over 24 hours, however, due to needing to depressurize. The fog, of course, is the real issue, as even though their suits can filter it out, if any of it sticks onto their suits when they return, it could easily be deadly. They're going to combat the fog in two ways, one of them of course being the judicial application of flamethrowers as they go through the forest. The other, though, is a plan involving putting a temporary foam seal over the open gash in the side of the tree where the fog is pouring out applied via drones. They plan on spraying a high-density polyethylene foam across the gash, waiting 20 hours for the remaining fog to settle, and then proceeding through the forest. They don't believe that the seal will do any lasting harm to 6666, and it will break down itself after five weeks. They don't really expect Hector to give them much trouble while spraying, but they have sedatives and cable binders planned if he tries to interfere. What could possibly go wrong? Before we get to that though, we're given a staff psychology report for the personnel stationed around the tree. The psychology complaints began with more mundane things, such as fear of heights or unhappiness about an extended work assignment, but before long, some more curious things began. Personnel began reporting feelings of being watched while in the cavern, feelings of despair, and more commonly, vivid, unsettling dreams. Noticeably, many of these dreams involved a monster with six eyes killing and or consuming the personnel or their loved ones. One of them specifically reported on a dream in which they are trapped in a hole while a monster with six eyes devours their mother. These nightmares are, of course, not coincidental, as we'll later see. Operation Cauterize then commences, in which three large drones are equipped with massive canisters of high-density spray foam and sent out towards the tree. They begin spraying the opening in the side of the tree with the foam, and before long, Hector begins following the drones with his eyes. As the foam starts to set, Hector attempts to pull it away from his body, forcing the drones to fire some tranquilizer darts into Hector's chest. In return, Hector destroys one of the drones with his spear, and the other two retreat to a safe distance as Hector continues to try to remove the foam. Cable binders are then fired from a nearby Foundation Tower, pinning Hector to the tree. It takes multiple cables to keep him down but eventually the drones are allowed to continue spraying the foam while Hector vocalizes loudly. Once the drones are finished and the foam sets, 
No more fog can be seen leaking out of the tree. Earlier, Kane mentioned an ancient sorcerer known as Methuselah, whom the Foundation apparently had contained. As it turns out, Methuselah is none other than SCP-343, with the rather grandiose nickname of God. Dr. Clef was sent in to interview Methuselah about the situation, due to his natural resistance against anomalous alteration. Clef says that he knows Methuselah's age now, which is not as ageless as the universe as 343 claims, and that he's really Methuselah the Arcanist, the royal vizier of the House of Maladraug. This revelation shocks 343, and Clef says that Cain told them the info, and that if he'd known Methuselah was here, he would have warned the Foundation long ago. 343 admits that the info is true, even though he hasn't gone by that name in a long, long time. He's annoyed that Cain even knew who he was, as he worked very hard to try and keep his distance from Cain and his family. Methuselah agrees to provide some information, but he says that even his great mind is not infallible, and he doesn't have a photographic memory like Cain does. He says that he was born a long, long time ago, in a place that has not existed since the seas rose, and the world was a more magical place back then. His name was Matthew. His mother's name was Mira, but he doesn't remember his father's name, a royal official for the king in the valley Ulem. He says that the Sky Kings styled themselves the mightiest and most ancient kingdom of men, and people would tell stories about how King Apollyon had stolen some great treasure from the court of the gods, and it gave him dominion over the kingdoms. It's clear that Methuselah is not as rich a source of information on the era as Cain or Seth. He goes on to say that there was some sort of military campaign where Apollyon called young men to serve in his armies, and all of the great houses would have to answer. And then the king died, followed by his son. He also recalls the parable about the four knights, three of which betrayed the king, and one that went to his doom trying to please him, Hector. Methuselah says that he doesn't really know what happened to the Sky King, but one day messages from them stopped coming, and the next day there was smoke over the mountains of Apollyanna. Later, they'd hear bits and pieces from travelers, talking about a monster with many faces, and a creature that killed any who looked at it, speaking of two of the three great profanities. Methuselah does recall a memory of when he was a boy, seeing a demon the size of a mountain, with six eyes, crashing and screaming and dragging its way to the north, away from the sea, but he doesn't know any more. Clef changes the topic to the Children of the Night, which causes Methuselah to once again be shocked, and he says that he's forgotten a lot of things in his life, but he'll never forget them. He was a young wizard at the time, no more than 60 or 70, and he had left Ulem after his mother passed to go into the desert and study with a Davite sorcerer. He knew about the fairies at the time, as people told stories, but most people had never seen one since they lived across the sea. 
It was said that if you went across the sea, you'd find a white city where you could trade with fairies on starry nights. The stories also spoke of the children of the night, who lived with the fairies in the woods, and they were said to be monsters, used as bedtime stories to scare children at night. Methuselah remembers the first time he laid eyes on them, from the distance on a summer night. They were massive things, taller than any man and covered in matted hair. He says that they were like someone described a man to you, but they had never seen a man themselves. Their eyes glowed in the dark, and they just stood there in a row. Methuselah and the others with him tried to approach and communicate, but they just stared and made a horrible noise like a child giggling or sang eerie songs in high-pitched voices. Methuselah's master, the high magistrate, who he says was an extremely powerful figure, went out to them to disperse them. Instead, his magic didn't seem to affect them at all, and they simply laughed and pulled apart his body. Methuselah and the others tried to flee, but they were faster and stronger than any man, not bothered by magic or weapons, although they did seem to dislike fire. The children of the night rounded them all up and bound them in black chains, dragging them back to their ships along the ground. Methuselah only survived by laying on top of an old farmer, who ended up being grinded against the earth and killed. There ended up being so many captives on the children's ships that there wasn't even room to lay down, but after a week or so, enough had died that the others could sit on top of them. They didn't seem to know what to feed their captives, giving them raw meat and seawater, which Methuselah was at least able to make potable. After a month, they arrived across the sea and were taken into the dark forest. All Methuselah remembers is how dark it was and how you could always feel their hair brushing up against you, like they were right on top of you, watching. They hung up their chains in the trees, and would come by and pull a person off of their manacles, like picking an apple, and then they would just play with them, violently. They'd poke a man so hard their fingers would go straight through, or squeeze until their eyes would pop out. He recalls seeing a pregnant woman get pulled in half as if they were opening a bag of chips, with the children of the night only giggling as they did so while playing in the blood. He goes on to say that the children never slept, ever, and you could try to sleep, but they'd watch you the entire time. If you did manage to fall asleep, it was worse, because they could somehow enter your dreams and there they had no limitations. After a while, Methuselah and other survivors decided that that's how they communicated to one another, in nightmares. The captives needed to be there in order to dream, so that the children could communicate with each other. Their whole history was also etched into those dreams, and Methuselah had a repeating dream of seeing a fairy surrounded by other smaller fairies with an infinite line of children of the night in the background watching her. He says that the children always felt so miserable and sad, and they never felt like there was any hatred on their part, just that they didn't think the same way as others. Clef asks him how he escaped, 
but Methuselah says that no one ever escaped unless you were dead, at which point they'd take your body to their god and throw you in a pit. He says that when you went into the pit, you became part of the nightmare, and sometimes they would see twisted mockeries of their friends' faces when they dreamt. There were fairies captured with him, but he says they were broken in some way that he can't describe. A number of the captured humans spent their time making plans and schemes on how to escape, but the fairies there were just... broken. He supposes that he did escape, though, thanks to another old sorcerer named... Noah. He always said that he had a plan to get them out of there, and then one day, he disappeared. They thought that he had been taken off somewhere else by the children, but then one day, the sun peeked through the treetops, and all of the flowers around them bloomed at the same time. It then began raining, for days, weeks, and months. By the time they found Noah, his body was a smoking husk covered in arcane symbols. It continued to rain, and the valleys started to fill up. He recalls seeing one of the children die for the first time, as one of them slipped down into a hole that was filling with water, and rather than trying to climb out, it stood there as the waters rised, and the others stood around and watched. Near the end, as the forest themselves started to flood, the children from all over the forest began rounding up all of their captives, which Methuselah guesses to be in the millions, and dragged them deeper into the woods where their god was. Methuselah and some others managed to slip away during this time, along with some fairies who still had their wits about them. They ran for some mountains to the south, and once they got above the tree line, they could see that the forest stretched into the horizon. They also saw their god a monstrous, festering tree with red lights around its base and people hanging from its branches. The fairies that looked at it began weeping and fled back into the forest, and he says that you could hear it screaming and moaning as well. They kept on running, and they lived on the mountain for a hundred years while the world was underwater. When the waters receded, the children of the night were gone, the fairies had gone back to the old forest, and the rest of them went on with their lives. Methuselah tells Clef that it has long been his hope and belief that all of the children of the night drowned during the flood, but if Clef has any reason to believe that that isn't the case, he needs to know, so that he can go away from this place. He says that he can't do it again, he can't go back into the dark. Clef says that they don't have any reason to believe that the children are still around, which is, of course, a lie, and Methuselah can tell that he's lying. He tells Clef to not seek them out, and to flee if he ever encounters them. Their civilization relies on our terror, and they must remain buried. For those familiar with the SCP-1000 file, this paints a pretty different picture of the Bigfoot especially their downfall. Rather than being wiped out by humanity with advanced tech, they were wiped out by a great flood sent by a sorcerer named Noah. The Bigfoot themselves were also not technologically inclined whatsoever, 
instead being monstrous aberrations that feed on our terror and communicate through our nightmares. Their entire forest and their god, Titania, sunk into the earth after the flood. So the question remains on what exactly remains down in that forest. With no further ado then, let's take a look at the exploration log of the team heading into the forest. All members of the team, both the Applied Task Force and the researchers, are equipped with Class C polyshell positively pressured insertion suits with filtered respirators. The team enters the pitch black forest, and they begin discussing what they might find down here, since so much has been pulled down by either the tree itself or the wormwood plants. One of the researchers on the team was also on the Wormwood team, and says that the ancient Davites learned about the Children of the Night, and how Titania could pull civilizations into the ground. They came across the sea to this forest, and after the sacrifice of a hundred thousand Deva, they managed to grab some seeds. The seeds themselves only originally pulled things into the ground, but they enchanted them with some sorcery to also make people forget the things ever existed. One of the team asks why the Children of the Night were so intent on dragging stuff down here, and a researcher says that if the children were created to kill the first man, maybe they didn't know how to do anything else. The team continues through the forest for a few hours before coming across a tree in a small clearing, with a small, emaciated humanoid figure impaled on one of its branches. It has long, pointed ear tips, large eye sockets, and silver hair, and in a pouch on its back it was carrying a small bundle of sticks and leaves in the shape of a doll. The team continues on but the control members observing them have lost the team's location due to some technical issues. They set up camp while waiting to see if the issues get sorted out. They wait several hours before setting up shifts and falling asleep. They're woken suddenly by one of the doctors screaming, before calming down and explaining that he had an extremely vivid dream. In the dream, he was walking down a path into the woods, and he saw the fairy they passed on the tree, as well as another in a ditch near it. The forest was lit up like daytime, but everything was a horrible red color, and he continued walking until coming to a hole where he heard someone's voice saying, The devil is twenty miles down, but what's deeper? He looked over the edge of the hole, and then he was suddenly falling before he woke up. Control is briefed about the dream, and they inform the team that these psychological issues will become more prevalent the closer they get to the center of the forest. The team packs up and continues further into the forest for another couple hours, before coming across a large tree with a spiral staircase emerging from the trunk and winding upwards. Above them, they see a number of strange, twisting structures formed from the wood and limbs of the trees in the shapes of the ruined buildings outside of the forest. The team then becomes aware of a sound in the distance, akin to wind, and they move through the increasingly dense forest to try and track it down. They lose contact with control as they enter into a clearing, domed by large trees pulled in towards each other. 
hanging from these trees are thousands of humanoid corpses, some humans, some fairies, all of which are shackled by thick black chains. The clearing slopes downward, and at the bottom is a large, featureless stone slab. The doctor who had the dream recognizes the clearing, but says that there was a hole here instead of that slab. They suspect that the ruins they're looking for are underneath this slab, and they wonder at first how to get under it, since it likely weighs thousands of tons, but they then spot a broken corner of it with an opening. The opening extends downwards for a short bit before landing on stone, so the team sets up a ladder and splits up, with half of the team remaining above ground. The sound of moving air is clearly coming from down below, and they enter into a square chamber with wooden boxes bound in chains to the walls. There's also a single door that leads into a long hallway containing more wooden boxes, as well as various humanoid and animal bones. They also spot a large mural carved into the rock, depicting many hundreds of dark figures standing beneath a large tree with a red artifact in its center. They continue through, passing sealed passageways overgrown with roots, as well as more murals depicting various scenes of humanoid figures being bound in chains, dropped into pits full of bodies, or set on fire. The same tree and red artifact is present in nearly every mural. They eventually come to a large stone door with another mural on it, depicting a mass of dark figures with yellow eyes huddled around the base of a large, curled, vaguely feminine figure, with many arms wrapped around them as dark clouds gather overhead. They open the door and enter into a circular room containing two staircases, one ascending and one descending. The one ascending has been blocked off completely by rubble, so they head down further, where they enter into an enormous chamber stretching as far as the eye can see in every direction, with a low ceiling. In a circle around the entrance, and then in concentric circles around that, are large, unmoving humanoid figures, covered entirely in hair, curled in the fetal position. They are each covered in the toxic fog from the tree, and they are all breathing slowly, and in unison. Back in the clearing, the rest of the team hears movement in the nearby trees, before hearing a sound akin to a child's laughter, but stretched unnaturally and echoing as if from very far away. They then hear it again, but from behind them, and then they spot a large object moving quickly through the trees before the laughter suddenly stops. It's replaced by a long, high-pitched whine coming from somewhere above them that lasts for 15 seconds. The ground beneath them starts shaking, the arched trees overhead begin to rustle, and then the trees pull back from one another, opening up the dome. They re-establish communications with Control, who tells them that there is another entity at their position that they can't identify. The high-pitched whining sound cuts off the conversation, the cavern shakes again, and then the entire cavern is bathed in a vibrant red light, emanating from the base of SCP-6666. Meanwhile, underneath the clearing, 
The team recovers from the ground shaking before noticing that the sound of moving air has now stopped. They then see that all of the hunched figures around them are now staring at the doorway with glowing yellow eyes. There's a loud snapping sound as one of the figures begins moving its arms and starts to stand, and then all of the other figures begin moving as well. The team immediately flees back up the stairwell and makes it to the ladder. As they're climbing, a powerful gust of air comes rushing from behind them, blowing a large amount of toxic fog with it, and one of the doctors gets blown off the ladder and out onto the clearing, cracking his faceplate. Within seconds, his body seizes and then goes limp, and the rest of the team leaves him behind as they continue to run. Chattering laughter can be heard all around them as they sprint through the forest back the way they came, and two of the team members open up their flamethrowers on the nearby trees. One of the team gets pulled backwards suddenly into the darkness, and his screams are suddenly cut off, followed by a wet, tearing sound. A dark mass is then seen flying towards the rest of the team, which turns out to be the upper torso of the team member, as if he was ripped in half. One of the team shoots him to put him out of his misery before continuing on. The rest of the team eventually does make it out without losing anyone else. As it turned out, the doctor whose faceplate cracked started transmitting audio and video an hour after the rest got out. He's heard coughing violently before rolling onto his back, and he sees Titania glowing with a bright red light above him. His suit managed to repressurize, and the effects of the fog wore off due to being so brief so he stands up. He hears the same stretched sound of laughter as he steps out of the clearing into the forest, so he decides to turn back. As he turns, his audio and video equipment begin to act erratically, but it picks up several distorted frames of a tall figure standing in a gap between two trees, illuminated by the red light of 6666. The camera then shuts off entirely, and we're left with just his audio as he quickly walks through the forest. A laugh is heard from immediately behind him, and 6666 lets out a powerful low droning sound multiple times before his audio shuts off as well. Truth be told, the Foundation has had far worse exploration attempts than that, since most of the team survived although they didn't really accomplish their objective. While they were in there, the root growth of 6666 above ground began to rapidly expand, and the tree itself began emitting red light from seams in its trunk. Spherical, glowing sacs also began appearing across its entire limb system. Meanwhile, Hector began pulling against his bindings, eventually snapping the cables in half, at which point he began vocalizing. Audio recordings of the event show Hector speaking in an unknown tongue, but those in the cavern at the time report hearing him speak in their native tongue. Luckily, someone made the good choice of transcribing Hector's words for us, which read, Hear me. Hear me. I am Hector, son of Holos. 
the screaming lance of the northern sky, last son of old Europe, servant eternally to the sky king Saurus von Apollyon, lord dominion of the world of men, inheritor of Asem's iron crown. Hear me, dread Titania. Hear me now and tremble. Tremble now as you did all those many years ago when I crossed the rising sea to find you. Tremble now as you did when I drove my lance into your bleeding chest. And tremble now as you did when I learned you had already betrayed your purpose. I struck you down, demon of yore. I wrenched open your body and broke you. You have betrayed your master's dread Titania, but you will not betray me. I will have your obedience. You will honor my wish and pour your poison into this grave. You will smother the corpse city of your interlopers and bury them. You will do this, demon, because I have demanded it of you. I am Hector, the divine fire of my lord's perfect will. Answer to me now, dread Titania. Hear me and tremble. Immediately after speaking, Hector began furiously attacking the seal on the tree's opening, as well as the tree itself. He eventually managed to pull out three of his remaining arms and use them to widen the opening in the tree with a great cracking sound. This caused a thick, dense cloud of the toxic fog to continue spewing out of the tree and into the cavern, at which point the red lights from the tree dimmed and faded away. Hector continued to attack the tree for an additional six hours before finally stopping. What happened is that Hector originally made it to the tree and to the home of the remaining children of the night. He tore a hole in the side of the tree, which caused it to start leaking out this poison all over the children. Unlike humans, this fog didn't kill the children, but it does keep them perpetually in place. So when the foundation came along and plugged up the hole, it didn't take long for the children to shrug off the effects. Fortunately, Hector was still there, and managed to fix the foundation's foolish mistake, recontaining the children and Titania. This is why the whole thing is listed as Thaumiel, as the foundation is now dependent on Titania's poison in order to keep the horrific children of the night from re-emerging into the world. The last thing we're given is a classified file written by 05-1, which addresses the differences between the information gathered here and the information contained in the SCP-1000 file. Obviously, we as readers generally take differences like this to be in the nature of the flexible canon of the SCP universe, but this one decides to talk about it. Apparently, the SCP-1000 file was originally written by Tilda Moose in 1956, and it predates the first recorded Bigfoot sighting by two years. Also, Tilda Moose did not work for the Foundation in 1956, nor was she even alive at the time. 05-1 then points to a specific section at the end of that file, in which the children apparently sent a message to the Foundation reading, We forgive you. Given choice for now, not forever. Let us back in. They ask, who do we know would want these creatures to be let back in? 
knowing all we know at this point. They tell the person reading this to think about it for a while and then come talk to them. Lancaster is working on the fourth night currently, and then they'll have to decide if they want to go down to the seventh floor to talk to him. The seventh floor they're referring to seems to be the seventh floor of SCP-3790, the Department of Abnormalities. 3790 contains a number of very unique and curious objects, including wormwood seeds and Apollyon's crown. The seventh floor is listed as inaccessible, but the O5s apparently can go down there if they choose to visit an individual. I'm not saying it's Adam LSM, but it could be. That just leaves us with the expunged text from the interview that Dr. Park did with the fairy in SCP-4000. When asked about the wish that the Children of the Night made to Titania, the fairy explains that when the first man, Asem, committed the first sin, there was outrage from the fairies, but since Asem was too powerful, they couldn't stand against him. Instead, they prayed to Titania to give them the power to destroy him, which she did by creating the Children of the Night. The fairies hated the children from the moment they first emerged, because they were like humans, although whether they mean by their form or their mentality is unclear. The fairies needed the children though, so they sent them across the sea to bring Asem to justice. The children did as they were demanded, with Asem's kingdom falling to ruin, but the fairies still hated them regardless. When they returned, rather than throwing them feasts and celebrations, the fairies put them deep into the dark of the forest, away from the stars reserved only for the fairies. They were merely children in mind, and they were left out of sight and out of mind for a hundred million years and in their isolation, they turned cruel. The Children of the Night eventually prayed to Titania and wished to not be alone anymore, and Titania provided by pulling out her own heart and giving it to them. She knew about the fairies' apathy and neglect, and so in giving the children her heart, she became their goddess instead of the fairies, a shame they still bear. The article ends with a picture that one of the doctors grabbed from the temple before fleeing, a picture showing a tall, fairy woman surrounded by smaller fairies, with the children of the night looming in the background. So, let's do a big recap then, since this was such a lengthy piece. The fairies had been on this planet for an unknown amount of time before the first humans came along, led by Adam al-Assem, the first and greatest among them. He committed a terrible blasphemy, according to the fairies, by plucking a star out of the sky and forging it into a crown. Since the stars are sacred to the fairies, they prayed to their goddess of stars, Titania, for the power to make Assem pay for his sin. Titania answered by creating the Children of the Night, large, hairy, humanoid figures that communicate through dreams. The Children of the Night were sent across the sea to destroy Assem, 
aided by the fact that they don't seem to be affected by magic or physical harm, and they succeeded, bringing an end to Assem's kingdom. Afterwards, since they disgusted the fairies so much, they were cast into the depths of the fairies' forests, while the fairies stayed in the treetops so as to gaze at the stars. The children of the night grew stranger and more cruel in the darkness, even if they're not entirely aware of their own cruelty. They were aware of their creator, and prayed to Titania to make them not so alone anymore. In response, Titania tore out her own heart, which they eventually used to create a massive prison, SCP-2932, which contained a sem, at least for some time. It's possible, although unclear, that this event also caused Titania to become rooted to the earth in the form of a massive tree, which the Children of the Night continued to worship by tossing bodies to it. The Children of the Night began spreading across the globe, capturing both fairies and humans and dragging them back to the forest, both to play with and sacrifice but also to use for communication, since they could only communicate through dreams, and they were not given the capability to dream themselves. This eventually led to their downfall, thanks to a powerful sorcerer they captured named Noah, who used his magic to summon an apocalyptic flood. In the aftermath, the children of the night were gone, the fairies reclaimed the forest, and humanity continued to spread. Eventually, a descendant of Assem decided to conquer the fairies across the sea, leading to the capture of a fairy princess. The princess proceeded to dish out a fair number of curses, one of which cursed a knight named Hector, the most loyal of the Sky King's knights. Despite his horrible curse, he wished to still serve the Sky Kings, so he was sent across the sea to where the goddess Titania was located, underground. The specifics of how the Sky Kings knew of Titania's existence is unclear, but these are pretty ancient events. Hector made his way to the tree, also locating the remaining Children of the Night. He didn't manage to destroy them all, instead cutting open the side of the tree and releasing a deadly fog, which traps the children in the cavern. He's also perpetually stuck there as well left to be tormented by the fog spilling out. Obviously, this piece answers a whole slew of questions about the expanding Cactusverse, but there's still larger issues at hand. The Fairy Princess and the Three Great Profanities are the real threats on the table, and the last of the four knights, Ogier, is a big question mark. It's good that Hector is essentially on the Foundation's side, as the Children of the Night sound like they'd be a pretty big problem if left loose. There's also the question of who exactly O5-1 believes is trying to free the children, and who is on the seventh floor of the Department of Abnormalities. The plot's definitely getting thicker with the Cactus Verse, and that's either a thing you're interested in or not. SCP-6666 is certainly an interesting enough piece on its own, but to really appreciate it requires a lot of knowledge of other pieces of the SCP universe. For those of us that are fans, though, it's an incredible mashup of science fiction and fantasy, 
and it's just heating up. 